Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded April 26th, 2023. Well, long before CIA whistleblowers Jeffrey Sterling, John Kiriakou, or Philip Agee revealed the crimes of the agency and warned of the dangers it posed to democracy and decency everywhere, there was David W. Condy. The first self-described CIA watcher is the subject of an extensive article just out at Covert Action magazine. Jeremy Kuzmarov is a journalist and author who also serves as managing editor at CAM. His book titles include Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again, written with John Marciano. Jeremy's recent piece at Covert Action, one of a raft of great articles he's put out this month, meet a forgotten CIA critic who presciently characterized the agency as a cancer in 1970 book, is a fascinating profile of David Conde and his career spent exposing the criminal enterprise that is America's most famous intelligence organization. Also, Covert Action Magazine's Spring Fun Drive is on. It's a chance you have to support the kind of fearless journalism everyone says they want, if only they knew how. Today, Jeremy Kuzmarov on David W. Conde, the CIA core of the cancer, and more. Well, welcome back to the program, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always my pleasure. I, I've got to admit, uh, I'd never heard of David Condy before reading your piece, and, I, and I'm sure that most of our listeners never have either. Just who uh, Jeremy is uh, or was David W. Condy? I never heard of him either. Uh, most of his books um, and writing were published uh, in Japan or through foreign publishers. So he wasn't well known, but he uh, his his um, papers are at the University of British Columbia, and he was discussed in a book by David Price. That's how I learned about him because the FBI was surveilling him, and he was a target you know, of the FBI Colonel Pro counterintelligence operation. Uh, now Condi, yeah, and, and if you uh, if anybody has the opportunity, they can contact the University of British Columbia uh, archives, and uh, they were very generous in sending some of his articles and stuff to me uh, and i think they they may be able to send to any any researcher or anybody who's interested in his writing and maybe yeah, i think it would be a good idea to pub, uh, republish his book because in 1970 he published a book called cia core of the cancer a uh, very well researched expose of the cia about five years before philip Agee's book inside the company and he had really quite intimate knowledge of the CIA. Uh, now, his background was that he, he was Canadian, and then he moved to California, and then he served in World War II in the Pacific War, and he worked in the propaganda division. You know, he was developing anti-Japanese propaganda for the U.S. Psychological Warfare Branch, and then he worked for Douglas MacArthur uh, in the U.S. Uh, occupation of Japan, the Supreme Command of the Allied Power, and he was in the film division, but he uh, was basically fired because he was promoting more left-leaning films, you know, films that basically supported, like, labor struggles in Japan and that were very critical of the right-wing uh, forces in Japan. And it was too, I guess he was seen as too left-wing by Douglas MacArthur. Uh, so he was fired. And then he covered the um, war crime tribunals for Reuters. He became a uh, journalist and correspondent. And he saw how the U.S. was basically favoring, like, there was this guy, Yoshio Kodama, who was this gangster who was allied with the right-wing faction in Japanese politics. And he was an outright war criminal in World War II. But the tribunal didn't go after him. 
and uh, he would basically, um, you know, got off, got free. So Condi was reporting on this contradiction and how the U.S. Uh, military occupation forces and leaders like Douglas MacArthur basically favored these right-wing elements in Japan, even though they were talking about, you know, bringing democracy to Japan, they were really protecting the uh, many of the ultra-right and many war criminals uh, like Kodama, who should have been prosecuted, uh, were not, were getting off. So he saw this contradiction and, and this uh, deep problem of U.S. foreign policy, and he was pointing it out in his writings, and I guess that got him in further trouble, but that was, I guess, part of his political awakening about how the U.S., government was operating in japan and he saw the censorship you know macarthur was imposing uh on newspapers uh on information about japan and how you know the left wing was being demonized and the right wing was being rehabilitated even though they're war criminals yeah and, and, and again this underside of u.s foreign policy where they're aligned with outright gangster because kodama was the found one of the founders i believe the japanese yakuza and was involved in like drug smuggling and all kind of illicit criminal activity and yet the cia was aligned with him and he was being favored uh and immune from any kind of prosecution so he saw that in real time and he was reporting on this and and he he you know probed more into the cia in japan i guess he witnessed it firsthand and he saw that the censorship in the media and he saw how the CIA had influence in shaping what was written about Japan within in Japan and also in the United States, a uh, certain narrative that basically sugarcoated what was really going on, uh, some of the repressive uh, aspects of Japanese politics you know, under the U.S. military occupation, like the drives against the political left uh, in Japan, what the left was really advocating for. And his books, you know, the book was written in 1970. So then I think for a period he worked for the Far Eastern Economic Review and he wrote some articles for there. And I guess he just published in different publications. Some of his writing were in Japan and he was covering political developments. And then he wrote several books. And one was actually, you know, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States became famous famous book and Zinn became famous when that was published in 1980. But Condi had actually written a whole history of the United States that looked at, uh, you know, it had a kind of similar framework, a frame of analysis as Howard Zinn, but his book was written uh, years earlier. Uh, and he was looking at, you know, labor conflicts and the repression of the left in the United States and worker struggles uh, and growth of American imperialism. Uh, so that's one of the books I think that's available at the UBC uh, archive. And yeah, he wrote numerous other books. He was a very astute analyst of political developments in Southeast Asia, and he was looking at the CIA. You know, he was very critical of the CIA and U.S. government role in the Korean War. He saw how that was foreshadowing the Vietnam War and was a horrific war, and how the CIA was backing coups uh, in, in Korea and South Korea and engineering political developments there, like in Vietnam and how corrupt and repressive the governments that the U.S. was imposing. Uh, so he described that in numerous articles. And ultimately in his book, CIA Core of the Cancer, he goes into all this. And he also goes into the propaganda. He argued that the CIA was most effective as far as its propaganda. And he looked at the corruption, how the CIA corrupted or co-opted many intellectuals and writers of that era and sponsored all these center-left journals and including journals in Japan and some more popular journals in the United States and Europe. And a lot of these writers were on the CIA, you know, 
on the CIA payroll or the journal being funded by the CIA. And ultimately, I think more information on that was published. In a, there was a book by Francis Stoner Saunders called, the European version was Who Paid the Piper? And it elaborated on what Condi had written about in his book, CIA Core of the Cancer. Maybe some new information, but much of it was in Condi's book. That was later, I think it's better known now by historians, how the CIA funded the Congress for Cultural Freedom and was involved in what he was describing, supporting all these journals and intellectuals. And they were funding like books uh, by, you know, supposedly reputable Asian scholars and experts who taught at top universities in the United States. And they were all getting their funding from the CIA and they promoted, you know, the pro-U.S. line. And so it, he argued that that was how the CIA exhibited the most influence, I guess, soft power. And he also goes into cor uh, foundations and the Rockefeller interests and how they often prevailed uh, in dominating U.S. foreign policy. And they funded these foundations uh, like Asia Foundation, and they were all designed to support U.S. foreign policy objectives. And it was ultimately the Rockefeller interests that were uh, the main beneficiaries, and he goes into like the background how Rockefeller interests, uh, you know, dominated like in the Eisenhower administration. You had the Dulles brothers, Kennedy, had Dean Rusk, who had been associated with the Rockefeller <laughs> interests, Henry Kissinger. So he also goes into the background of a lot of political leaders and shows their connection with the uh, Rockefeller uh, family as well as uh, the CIA. And yeah, it's really an amazing book you know, as far as the detail and the knowledge of the author um, and the insights he has. So it's uh, hopefully maybe the book would be republished because I, I think, you know, for, for American audience, because even students of recent history would do very well reading this book. And he has yeah, a section on Vietnam. Uh, but yeah, it was published in New Delhi, India. So I don't think it was known by Americans. Like even when you had the anti-Vietnam War movement and you had some critics of the CIA emerging to the fore, like Philip Agee, and you had intellectual like Noam Chomsky, who was critical of the Vietnam War and U.S. foreign policy. But I've never seen them reference Condi. So I don't think yeah, his book was... May, it may have been censored or you know it was blocked. Read, uh, Americans never knew about it, but they would again be well to look into it today if they want to understand how the CIA has operated and the many crimes and atrocities it committed historically. And you can, you know, understand what they're doing today by understanding that history. Well, Americans and Canadians too. I mean, Canada is usually so house proud about uh, uh, taking possession of our, uh, our sons and daughters that have done well overseas. Uh, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Jeremy Kuzmarov. We're talking about and around his article, Meet a Forgotten CIA Critic Who Presciently Characterized the Agency as a Cancer in 1970 book. And that book is CIA Core of the Cancer. Yeah, I was struck, uh, Jeremy, with, with this idea of continuity where uh, Condi is uh, during the war uh, studying the propaganda methods of the Japanese thought police. And then he says, uh, you cite him saying that, uh, well, this is how it was so easy for him to spot the propaganda after the effect, after the, after the war, uh, when the CIA started employing it, because he, he'd already, he'd spent his career looking at it already. And it, it, it just rang familiar. Yeah, that that was part of his political education. Is yeah, he he became himself a master of propaganda, propagandist during World War II. Uh, so he saw the methods, 
And, yeah, he saw how the CIA was, perhaps they even copied uh, Japanese propaganda methods, uh, and they really perfected it because, uh, like he says at one point, you know, there are all these books, and nobody knew that the CIA was funding these books. So, I mean, that that's really successful propaganda because people don't think they're reading propaganda. They think they're reading objective study. And he lists some of the books that were very influential at that time, like books on Southeast Asia by those author, you know, Robert Scalapino, a well-known uh, Asian scholar of that era in the 60s, 70s, I think, at UC Berkeley. And Edwin O. Reichauer had been an ambassador and then taught at, at Harvard. And they wrote these books, uh, and they were, you know, quite, you know, well-informed about the countries they were writing about. So, uh, you know, people who are, you know, students of that era and people who were interested in learning uh, about Southeast Asia would pick up these books, and, and their books on Latin American countries, you know, that the CIA was involved in. And that would be their source of knowledge about the country. And they had no idea that it was being slanted by the CIA, or many things were being left out about how the CIA or... U.S. Uh, government may have been trying to manipulate things in those countries, and the U.S. you know favored leaders would be presented very glowingly, and adversaries very negatively. But but they thought they were reading objective books, so so that's especially uh, effective as far as propaganda when people don't know it's propaganda. You you quote David Carnegie as saying that people when they think of the CIA, it, it's not their coups and uh, their uh, cloak and dagger that has been so. Successful, but really their fostering of academia and uh, these what we call today think tanks, but these uh, uh, soft power centers that uh, manipulate public opinion. Exactly, and that's why I think his insights are important today because this has continued. Uh, and you know, I think the CIA is a little smoother because in the 60s and 70s, you know, some of the terrible thing they had done, you know, came out like in the Bay of Pigs and you know, Guatemala, Iran coup. And I think now they're they're more effective in, in completely covering up what they're doing in foreign countries. And uh, at the same time, yeah, they've continued uh, what they were doing all along, which he, what he describes is to very, you know, covertly support propaganda uh, and to uh, manipulate public opinion very effectively. And we've seen in the Russian-Ukraine conflict, and we, we've seen, you know, anybody who has experience in, in higher education would see the influence and how certain narratives are advanced and certain professors, you know, the professors who become most influential in certain fields like the U.S.-Russian relation field or diplomatic history uh, very clearly have connection with the, the CIA. Uh, you know, John Lewis Gaddis comes to mind if you've studied uh, U.S. foreign policy history. You know, he was the dean of that field at Yale University, and you know he was in the Bush White House uh, uh, helping to plan the war in Iraq, and he promoted a very sanitized uh, view of, of Cold War history. You know, he wrote some influential books on the history of the Cold War that were widely, uh, probably still widely used in college courses. And you know, the book was praised by Henry Kissinger. So uh, that type of intellectual has you know connection with the CIA. If he's not directly funded from him he gets funding from or grants from you know corporate uh, foundations connected to the CIA and you know the CIA has influence in Ivy League schools uh, uh, in a hiring process I would imagine so th those are the kind of things he's he's kind of showing that that happened throughout the Cold War and that's continuing today and, and students are learning history a certain way you know history of the Cold War 
And, you know, these think tanks, as you point out, get their funding either directly from military industry or these foundations. And the foundation, you know, the CIA may not directly fund them, but they're they're tied with these corporate foundations who are the ones that, that finance these think tanks that shape public opinion. And, of course, they've been able to infiltrate the major media and control the media narrative, you know, New York Times, Washington Post. And I think Khan goes into that as well. So... Yeah, it's a pattern that we see playing out over now more than 70 years. And that's why I say it's really uh, would be a good idea for anybody who wants to understand how this propaganda system works to uh, read his book, CIA Core of the Cancer. And that's why, yeah, perhaps uh, I would maybe if there's somebody out there, yeah, I would, I would hope maybe to try and get the book republished, maybe with a foreword, uh, because I think it's very valuable uh for people to try and understand how this propaganda system works and how insidious it is and the, the influence of these foundations. Well, it might be difficult considering the CIA's involvement with legacy publishing, too. That's another area where they've exerted a lot of control over the years. Yeah, there are side. I mean, I don't think it would be published by a mainstream press, but uh, there, there are some alternative uh, presses that might be willing to publish it. So. Well, and on the very far other end, the other extreme is, and you mentioned the the links with the Yakuza and, and the Japanese mafia and the CIA. Everybody's familiar, or most people, I imagine, with the, the predecessor of the CIA, the OSS, and they're uh, linking up with the Italian mafia and specifically Lucky Luciano during the Second World War and sending him into Sicily to work against the Nazis. And that led to a, a long and an ongoing relationship between uh, the spook world and the uh, organized crime. Is this a similar uh, deep um, entrenchment in Japan and the Orient with uh, the Yakuza and other organized crime elements like that in the CIA? Absolutely, yeah. And Khan has a chapter also on South Vietnam to show the continuity. You know, he called it the CIA kingdom of South Vietnam. And really it was an indented nation essentially by the CIA. Uh, the Geneva Accord was supposed to unify Vietnam. There was no real basis for any division. And the CIA had huge influence uh, in bringing to the four leaders who were connected to organized crime, like Nguyen Cao Ki, who was a key uh, leader, had been, was the premier in the late 60s when the Vietnam War was going on, supported by the U.S., had been taken off a mission because of opium smuggling into Laos. And he was basically a political gangster. And Nguyen Van Thieu and his ruling circle uh, also uh, had a deep tie to the narcotics uh, trade. And you can look in Laos as well. He's got material on that. Uh, in Laos, the, the CIA was supporting major drug traffickers, uh, including you know, some key top figures in the Laotian uh, Air Force and Army, uh, was supporting in coups. And then you had the Hmong Army, uh, was an army of a uh, tribal element in Laos to fight the communists. And there they grew opium and sold opium. So, yeah, the CIA was deeply enmeshed in the drug trade. But yeah, that goes back. It started, you know, the CIA alliance with organized crime and gangsters in the far right uh, as part of its crusade against uh, any leftist group or, or communism. Yeah, it originated in World War II with what we described and, and what Connie describes with uh, Yoshio Kodama and the alliance with the far right and gangster elements in Japan during the U.S. military occupation. And of course, that was never publicized and 
but barely known today. You know, most uh, you know, history courses, if they cover the U.S. military occupation of Japan, very few courses uh, would go into that sort of alliance. Connie stayed in Japan and, and got a got a job with Reuters and started uh, reporting on the military tribunals uh, for the Far East, as you report, uh, for, for Reuters. And then bef- before uh, MacArthur couldn't stand that either and had him actually booted out of the whole country. Yeah, because he was reporting on, on what I was saying, Yoshio Kodama, and how the U.S. was letting him go and he was a gangster and that the U.S. was uh, – the, the, the tribunal was uh, – uh, hypocritical the way it was carried out and that the u.s was aligning with far-right factions in japan and yeah he was booted out he moved back to the states he had a lot of trouble i think the you know he was persecuted by the fbi and his wife left him but he then he went to work for sears roebuck uh, and he did pretty well in that company obviously a very smart hard-working and talented person and uh he did well in the sears roebuck company but then he was able to move back to Japan and uh, work again as a journalist, I think for the Far Eastern Review, maybe some local uh, publications in the in the 60s. I'm sure his passion was writing and uh, journalism, and he was a, a really gifted political analyst. If you read his articles, they're really well-researched, and um, you know, so I think many of them you know, stand the test of time you know, as far as his sharp political analysis. And, you know, the, the writing style is good. And it's really the, the quality of research is what, what marks him, I think, is extraordinary is just his sharp political insights and high quality political analysis that stands up many years later. Uh, you know, stuff on Canada and how, you know, U.S. company were taking over and how he was spotlighting some more nationalistic leader like in the Pierre Elliott Trudeau government that were trying to take more local control over, you know, like the oil and keep out the Rockefellers. But we've seen how Canada has become more and more subservient to the U.S. and U.S. corporations since the Pierre Elliott Trudeau era. So I think he was prescient in his analysis of even U.S.-Canadian relations. The fact that he would stick to it, it couldn't have been a safe way to go, not only for his career prospects, and you write about how his marriages were undermined by uh, the FBI on on more than one occasion and his personal life disrupted, uh, but he stuck to his guns. I mean, it couldn't have been safe for him in Japan, for example, to be writing about the Yakuza and and walking around as some foreigner uh, without protection because he's, he's pissing off everybody, it seems. Probably, yeah. I mean, I think he was just a good reporter, and he was reporting what's going on, and then they, they fired him you know, in the 40s. I don't know if he was reporting about that again in the 60s, but he was reporting a lot about Korea. He wrote a book about the Korean War that was extremely critical of the Korean War you know, and U.S. policy, and really celebrate. He, he celebrated the epic victory of the North Korean people against U.S. aggression. And I think uh, a historian may come to that perspective down the road. I think he was right uh, that the U.S. was the aggressor. Um, there's ample evidence of that, that the U.S., you know, basically, much like Vietnam, they, they manufactured a regime in, in South Korea that murdered tens of thousands of its own people. Uh, they then encouraged, uh, you know, South Korea really, I think the evidence is strong that South Korea uh, started the war. You know, in, in, in the history you learn here, and I learned, you know, I studied Cold War history, and they always said the North invaded the South. 
But then the more I looked into it, there's uh, overwhelming evidence that the South, well, firstly, the South had, had uh, started carrying out sabotage mission and tried to assassinate the North Korean leader in, in 1949. But there's strong evidence that they fired the first shot. And that comes out even Bruce Cummings, who's an outstanding historian, and raises strong uh, evidence about that. So, uh, you know, Cummings is very, very careful, but he, you know, with the evidence, uh, but so is Khan. And, and I think, uh, you know, Cummings's book, if you read them, kind of uh, very similar in analysis to Condi, who was writing many years earlier when nobody was saying that, you know, that the U.S. was the aggressor and nobody was looking at how oppressive and brutal the regime in South Korea was, backed by the United States, and nobody was uh, really would support, even today, nobody would support North Korea, but if you look at the you know the big picture north korea was really defending their revolution uh, they were trying to assert a more independent economy freed from japanese colonialism and the successor the, the government that the us aligned with in south korea was dominated by japanese collaborators and it was really an anti-colonial struggle of the north korean people and that's how it's viewed in north korea today and i, I think many would see it that way uh, you know, if, if you know, I mean, we're, there's so much propaganda about North Korea, and we're kind of conditioned to view them as evil. But uh, if you get beyond that brainwashing, I think, and you see their perspective, which Condi does, I think they had a, a righteous cause, and they fought like the Vietnamese. I mean, many, in hindsight, would celebrate how the Vietnamese fought and defeated the you know greatest imperial power, who replaced France. And I think the Korean War should be viewed in the same way. The North Korean people stood up to a foreign invader who tried to destroy them. I mean, the U.S. bombed North Korea basically back to the Stone Age and killed a tenth of their population. And yet they endured that onslaught and survived. And that regime has endured up till the present. So I think Khan was right in his analysis of Korea. But yeah, it wasn't a popular view at that time. And uh, another who expressed it was Woody Guthrie. If you go in the Woody Guthrie Museum, which they have here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Guthrie supported North Korea and China and even wrote a song where he envisioned re-enlisting the military to take up arms for the Chinese against Douglas MacArthur, who he mocked, and against the American generals, who Guthrie hated. So I, I think uh, you know, Khan had a similar view of Woody Guthrie about the Korean War, and I think it's 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 the correct view. And to compare, you can compare Korea and Vietnam, and they're very similar war. And the Condi understood that better than most. Even many anti-war activists may not have understand understood that as well as he did. He also didn't have a very high opinion of MacArthur, calling him a, a psychopath and yeah. a dictator. Well, the article is meet a forgotten CIA critic who presciently characterized the agency as a cancer in 1970 book that's about David W. Condy, a Canadian, one of Canada's own, uh, a Canadian connection, as the CBC might say. You can find it not at the CBC, though, but at covertactionmagazine.com. We're going to take a break uh, here, Jeremy, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the other articles you're working on. There's quite a plethora of them, and also talk about the spring fundraiser uh, over there at CAM. Escape the narrative. Gorilla Radio. Welcome back to Gorilla Radio. Well, I am still here with Jeremy Kuzmarov. Jeremy is the 
head editor, uh, editor in chief of covertactionmagazine.com. Jeremy, you're um, managing editor. Sorry, you're uh, you guys are holding your spring fundraiser. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, we we could use the financial support. Uh, we're hoping to expand, uh, you know, our coverage. And yeah, if you check out our website www.covertactionmagazine.com, you know, you'll see the kind of articles we produce. And yeah, I think you know this Condi article. Uh, we want to expose, you know, the history of the CIA, the terrible things it done it has done. I mean, I think it's important to know the history. So you can understand what it might be doing today, including this realm of propaganda, uh, which is so powerful. So, I mean, I, I would hope that the, the magazine would help enlighten people. And, yeah, we cover a mix of historical articles as well as current events. You know, we have a uh, recent article like about the you know, covert operation involving Ru- Russia and the attempt to smear Russia, even link Russia to this recent uh, document link by, by Jack Teixeira. Uh, and that, that's, you know, continuity related to what we're discussing, that the, the CIA is constantly trying to manipulate public opinion and make, you know, the Russians out to be these uh, diabolical people trying to undermine, you know, U.S. democracy and politics. Uh, and they've been doing that since, since the Cold War. So we're trying to expose that, educate the public, and hopefully build a movement to challenge the power of the CIA, which is a, a cancer, as Khan pointed out, as Philip Agee pointed out. It's a rogue agency that, that carries out criminal activity, and, and it has to be stopped like other cancers. In Korea, I guess we should remember, too, that North and South are a construct, that the Korean people were singular until they, they were torn asunder by the Japanese occupation and by the Americans taking advantage of it. But they see themselves as one people divided artificially even now, or at least in the North, they certainly see that see it that way. Yes, just like Vietnam. That's why the two are similar. And, you know, the the Korean people heroically defeated the Japanese uh, colonialists. And Kim Il-sung was one of the uh, leaders of the guerrilla movement. And they thought, you know, finally, just like the the Vietnamese uh, heroically mobilized under the communists to defeat the French imperialists, and both thought, oh, finally, you know, we can rebuild our country and and develop our economy. But then the United States... (laughs) Uh, a new you know monster got involved and that was the united states and it was the united with regard to you know with regard to vietnam you had the geneva accord that was supposed to uh, promote free elections uh, that would allow for the unification of a country uh, just after the uh, Vietnamese had defeated the French at Dien Bien Phu. But the Eisenhower administration uh, acknowledged that Ho Chi Minh, would win, the communist leader, would win the election, with Eisenhower estimated about 80% of the vote. So they never signed the Geneva Accord, and they couldn't go forward with those elections, and they installed a client government and tried to build a government in South Vietnam, and the rest is history. It led to the disastrous and criminal war in Vietnam. And Korea, in the case, uh, two U.S. colonels, one was Dean Rusk, uh, the future Secretary of State, who had a connection with the Rockefellers. And the Rockefeller were getting oil out of all these countries, so they had their own agenda. And Dean Rusk and, and another colonel, Bone Steel, they created the, the, uh, the 38th parallel dividing line that divided North and South Korea, and it was a completely arbitrary line. It had no historical basis whatsoever. And then they flew Sigmund Rhee, who had been 
uh, out of his co- the country for 30 years or so, had lived in the United States and had no political um, backing in, in, in the Korea. He was flown on an OSS airplane and they installed them in South Korea and they built up his army and police and he surrounded himself with Japanese collaborated and massacred an estimated 100,000 South Koreans before igniting the war with North Korea. Uh, he never could have fought without the U.S. and, and the U.N. involvement. So, again, yeah, I know Khan, I think, understood very clearly that this was basically a continuation of, of foreign colonialism, and that's how the Korean people saw it. And that's why they celebrate their victory, as we would celebrate here. You know, we celebrate the 4th of July, how the United States... Uh, Americans, you know, rallied against the British imperialists and got their independence. And Koreans, hopefully one day the country will be united and they will, sell, uh, you know, North Koreans celebrate their victory over the American invaders, uh, just like we celebrate the 4th of July. So it's not that different, really. And I think most people can clearly understand that. But in the McCarthy era and even now, there's still a you know, fog of propaganda that, that uh, clouds people's uh, ability to, to see it clearly. But Khan is one of the few of his generation who could see things very clearly. And, you know, he lived in Southeast Asia for a long time. So I think he understood the perspective of the people there very well. And he explained that in, in a lot of his writings. Well, if, and if I remember it, when uh, things were getting sticky during the war between the two Koreas with the UN coalition of the willing, or as it would be called in later years, fighting with the South and Red China, or the People's Republic fighting, uh, supporting the North. Uh, MacArthur, and I think Curtis LeMay, too, recommended using nukes. Yes, they, uh, MacArthur hatched a plan to use nuclear weapons on the border between North Korea and China. Yeah, because, you know, China, the, the Maoist revolution in China was also an anti-colonial revolution. See, I think, you know, here you have the, the, the legacy of McCarthyism and this uh, Cold War mentality. So Americans are, or Canadians as well, conditioned to view, like, you know, Chinese revolution, 1949, or the communists took over, and we were fighting communism. And that's how it's taught in history courses, including at the collegiate level in most courses. Uh, but uh, from their point of view, you know, uh, China had been a neo-colony of Great Britain, and the Maoist revolution was really about reclaiming their country. Uh, and again, they're paralleled with, with the United States and, and the fight against the British. And so that was seen an anti-colonial revolution. And the Maoists were also, you know, uh, promoting program to uplift the Chinese peasantry. And uh, yeah, the, the Chinese supported North Korea and, and eventually sent uh, a lot of troops. And they they lost nearly a million men. And Mao Zedong's own son, Mao Anying, was killed in the Korean War. So, but they're the fraternal. Th- those both those movements saw themselves as anti-colonial movements fighting against foreign imperialism, the United States. And the U.S. behaved brutally in Korea, as they did Vietnam, and Khan describes this. And he goes into the atrocities, and he had a discussion of the Phoenix program before it was even very well known, and CIA Corps of the Cancer, which he refers to as a computerized murder program, which it was what it is what it was. They used computers to compile uh, data on dissidents and develop blacklists, and then they would send the secret police agents to kidnap, torture, and often murder those on the blacklist. And that kind of approach uh, program was initiated in Korea. And actually, Khan goes into how Park Chung-hee, you know, the U.S., he makes the point uh, that the U.S. tend to ally with some of the sleaziest 
people uh, and uh, you know empower the most the, the worst elements of that society, the worst opportunists who would kill their own countrymen. And he he notes how Park Chung Hee, who became actually with the Kennedy administration, and it's a, a myth. Uh, I've read this in some books that Kennedy was not an imperialist and, you know, he was going to, I mean, I think there were some good things about he was going to withdraw from Vietnam and he was uh, making peace with the Russians. I think there's some, you know, good things that Kennedy was starting to do, but it's a myth that Kennedy was not an imperialist. And he points out that Kennedy, who brought who back to coup in South Korea, because there was a student revolt against Sigmund Rhee, who was the original leader of the U.S. in power, student revolt. So the Kennedy administration moves in to install Park Chung-hee, who became the dictator uh, from 1961 till around 1980. And then his daughter came in uh, a few years ago, and she was extremely right-wing. And Khan points out that he was the sleaziest opportunity in, in the Korean War. He had collaborated with the Japanese, and then he was involved the Korean version of Phoenix, killing his own countrymen with these blacklists that they developed, and then the, you know the kidnapping and, and murder operations by special force units that he was commanding. So those are the kind of people the U.S. put in, as he points out, and like Nguyen Kheo Ki and Thieu in South Vietnam. These guys were were gangsters involved in the opium. Especially Key was directly involved in the opium business, and he was like Yoshio Kodama, an outright gangster. Uh, so, and I don't think it's really controversial. As horrible a history as it is, and it sounds, I guess, to the innocent ears of some, you know, maybe students or people who grew up in America, if you were living in Southeast Asia at that time, you witnessed that. And it was known how horrible these people were that the U.S. was installing. And the U.S. was really hated. I mean, they, they behaved very brutally. The troops in Korea was like Vietnam. You know, They're committing Milai-type massacres all the time. And there's a museum commemorating it in North Korea, Museum of American War Crimes. And an objective historian went there to assess. You can say, oh, that's North Korean propaganda. But these were objective independent historians like Bruce Cummings and others. And they said that, unfortunately, the North Korean, I mean, obviously they have, maybe they're going to play up some things for their own political reason, but he said objectively there was a huge amount of evidence to verify uh, a lot of those atrocities, uh, you know, a large number of the atrocities that are showcased in that Museum of American War Crimes. Again, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Jeremy Kazmarov. Jeremy is the managing editor at CovertActionMagazine.com. He's the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano. Uh, you could write that again, I think, uh, Jeremy. The Russians are coming again, again, uh, because yeah. you were right and in the middle of it. Add one point to what you're saying, yeah, why it'd be important to study this history and, yet, and I was uh, reviewing another book and Khan goes into some of this and there's a new book by A.B. Abrams published by Clarity Press called Atrocity Fabrication and he has a whole chapter on Korea that's very good like what I was describing these horrible war crime committed by the United States that are well documented uh, by independent historians and there's even records about in the U.S. National Archives which I've done some research in but at the time, it was just the media reported that North Korea was committing all these horrendous atrocities. And they even had a film by Humphrey, with Humphrey Bogart, you know, the famous Hollywood uh, actor, narrated this film about war crime by the communists. And if you live in that period, you know, you've been inundated with propaganda and you would have the impression that the communists committed all the atrocities and were the barbarians. 
And so, I mean, that's why I think they have cut history education, because if you understand, and the reality, and we know for a fact, because there was a truth commission when North South Korea did have a democratic uh, revolution in the late 80s, and uh, a truth commission was set up by a more enlightened leader named Kim Dae-jung. And that commit, you know, very detailed and extensive uh, investigation into atrocities in the Korean War. And they found that 83% of the atrocities were committed by South Korean forces uh, or in the United States. So that's 83% versus 16 or 17%. Uh, and some percentage may have been unknown. So I don't know the percent of the communists, but... Uh, let's say it was at most 17%, 83%. So that's uh, which one side is clearly committing the vast majority of the atrocities. That's South Korea and the United States. Yet if you, uh, and you can do a, a simple research project, you know those facts, go back and read the New York Times or Time Magazine or Saturday Evening Post uh, from the 19, early 50s, and I, I did this myself, and you're in a day with a story about red atrocities, and the, the, the communists are made to be look like barbarians, and every atrocity is blamed on them, and you would have that impression that it was a just fight. So if you understand that manipulation of public opinion and, and atrocity fabrication, uh, misreporting, you could see that obviously the same thing is going on in, in Russia and Ukraine, and if and there's ever a truth committee, it wouldn't. I don't know the numbers, and I'm sure Russia has committed atrocities, as North Korean troops did commit some in the Korean War. But uh, you know, the context is a little different in that war. But given the pattern, very likely that Ukraine has committed a huge number. Uh, you know, the majority of the atrocities, if there was ever an independent truth committee when the reporting is making the Russian uh, to have committed all the atrocities. Uh, and we know from alternative reports that Ukraine is committing huge atrocities, whether it's shelling civilian area in Donbass and Donetsk, whether it's torture, whether it's beheadings of a prisoner of war. Some of that has come out in the open. So, But it, it's quite similar to what happened in Korea with the manipulation of public opinion. And again, Condi's work is very valuable in showing how that propaganda system functions and the interests behind it. And I think that would be a great education. But unfortunately, they don't allow this material in most schools because I used to teach a course on the CIA at various institutions of higher education. And I was not very well treated, let's just say, <laughs> other faculty or administrators Although many students found my courses enlightening and the student reviews were highly positive uh, because students are open-minded at that age, I rarely encountered any resistance among students to objectively trying to learn about the history and, and manipulation of public opinion. It was only the administrators and other faculty. Well, that open-mindedness is also viewed as an opportunity by the CIA, and they they send recruiters uh, covertly into universities and second uh, uh, institutions of higher education Absolutely. all the time. And they insidiously plant their kind of people, the John Lewis Gaddises of the world, and there are plenty of them in higher education, and it would be good for more uh, journalists to expose these people uh, and the distorted history that they teach. Uh, at schools like Yale, Harvard, many others, and how they uh, contribute to uh, what Noam Chomsky called the manufacture of consent, just like the media. Uh, and it's it's sad, really. I mean, there's so much potential in our society, and 
we don't why do we want to go out and do these horrible things in the world and most people don't they they want to uh you know america to be respected they want to do good in their own life and they want to interact positively with other nations not in this way of attacking them and murdering their people and lying about it when you're talking uh, about blaming uh, communists for all these atrocities atrocities that were actually being committed by the other side it's an old uh, uh, an old trick to to charge your enemy with the crimes that you yourself are committing and 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 we've seen it time and again and all over the place actually but it shows a lot of bottle and now you, I, I mentioned you you wrote a bunch of articles i can't remember i read about five of them and i can't remember which article this one was in but you're talking about the the ned and this whole uh, what we're hearing right now a lot of in, in the media is oh they're in here they're they're messing with our democracy they're trying to influence our democracy and and we're hearing arguments like that from like the National Endowment for Democracy itself. We're crying about this when that is their whole raison d'etre is to go in and, and mess with other countries' yeah. political structure. I mean, how do these people look themselves in the mirror? I mean, I guess they just have no shame in life that they're, they're, they spew BS day in and day out. You know, Damon Wilson is the head now of the NED. It used to be Carl Gershman. Uh, but, you know, they go out and it's so hypocritical uh, uh, what they spew uh, and so distorted. Uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to fathom how somebody would go about his life and feel good about himself, no matter how much money he makes or influence he gets in society, if, if what he's doing every day is, is, is a lie. And that's what they're doing. They're they're lying and brainwashing and distorting. I mean, the NED. Some there are some. You know, one thing the NED focuses on is a Just like in the Cold War, you know, North Korean. They were spotlighting North Korean atrocities. So now it's the atrocities of Russia, and China, and they 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 try and promote you know dissidents in those countries. And I mean, there's some. You know, I think Russia and China do have some oppressive characteristics uh so some of what they say is is true but they leave out the, you know so many other things and, and often they're they're distorting they're championing people who are actually trying to overthrow those governments and we would be treated you know you know some are dissidents or political prisoners or forced into exile they would have to be in any country if they're tr if their groups trying to overthrow the u.s government like look at the proud boys i mean they're going to end up in jail and nobody would champion their cause, really, as as the great freedom fighters. They're so selective. I mean, there's so much oppression that goes on in so many countries that they just ignore. So it's all, you know, it's a politicized agenda of spotlighting the oppression of any American enemy, real or exaggerated, and ignoring oppression where the U.S. is backing regimes or within the U.S. itself. There are many oppressed groups. There are political prisoners in the United States. They're you know, Native Americans, they're African Americans who've been subjected to, to mass incarceration and uh, unfair policing. They, they wouldn't champion their cause. It's only some minority groups uh, in Russia who are allegedly oppressed. Uh, and again, some of the circumstances are, are questionable. Uh, it's, it's unclear uh, what is going on exactly. So. Well, you mean you're not afraid of the African People's Socialist Party taking over the United States <laughs> at the behest of Russia? I mean, you've, you've got an article up. Is this man a Russian agent operating in the black community of St. Louis? 
some may be aware, but uh, I mean, it would be risible. But these people are arrested and facing serious charges of what sedition or what is it? Yeah, and that's a tragedy because that group, um, the African People's Socialist Party, has done a lot of good uh, in the black community in St. Louis and Florida seems to where they operate the most. And I I live in Tulsa, and I think Tulsa is a similar situation to St. Louis, where the city is still very segregated. And in Tulsa, you know, the North End more uh, African American, and I think St. Louis it's more East Northeast St. Louis, uh, and that's where you know the Michael Brown incident occurred. And this group, you know, was raising funds. They built uh, basketball courts, you know, for youth to to uh, play sports instead of being in gangs. They developed black-owned businesses. They developed a midwife program. Uh, they developed a program to help um, recently released prisoners, uh, you know, get um, job training and get you know, uh, you know, help them integrate in society. So they're really doing a lot of positive things for the community. It's their their community, and they're w- working positively. And then this happened. They're accused of being Russian agents uh, because he went to Russia. The leader, O'Malley Eshetela, went to Russia like seven years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, his home was invaded by the FBI. All their files were stolen. He was treated. They, they sent in drone. He was a vastly overzealous police raid where it was like military tanks. And he's 80 years old. The leader, Yeshitela, the leader of the group, is 80 years old. He's written numerous books. He's very well-spoken, articulate a guy. Uh, imagine his home is invaded by drones and the FBI, and he could have even been killed. There are laser beams on him, and his they're basically terrorized. And, I mean, they, they picked up on it one visit uh, he made to Russia. And, uh, you know, I don't know if the group received some funding from Russians. They but, this was, def- but this was all just a political ploy anyway to amplify yeah, I mean, the it, idea that America is under threat. Yeah, this is exactly, you know, this, the Russians are coming again. They have nothing, so they got to pick on somebody. So they pick on this small African socialist group that had done a lot of positive for really downtrodden communities. And again, they may have, uh, I don't know, if they got some money, uh, they were desperate for money. And they, you know, this guy, Ayanov, there's some guy, Ayanov, who Yeshitela was in contact with, how would he have known if he worked for the Russian government, you know, if he was somebody interested in supporting some of their campaigns or well, it may, it's all it's all uh, it's all in the name, uh, Mr. Kuzamarov, <laughs> if that is your real name. <laughs> well, Jeremy, we're fast running out of time. But before we go talking about a, a continuity and, you know, the future in the past, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., gave uh, a speech throwing his hat into the presidential ring this past week. Uh, he mentioned some of the stuff that we were talking about, uh, some of the stuff you don't hear anywhere other than, you know, like a Jimmy Dore show or uh, the gray zone or some, you know, some places like this on the far corners of the internet. Uh, he made it <clears throat> rather mainstream talking about empire and, and overreach of the military and Condi uh, fingers, John F. Kennedy, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s uncle is being the if there's one person most responsible for the Vietnam War, it was him. Uh, RFK speech didn't go there, uh, quite the opposite. But uh, in the last minutes that we have, Jeremy, uh, what's your uh, impression of the RFK candidacy? Well, I think you see that RFK is being smeared in the media, and that would get at what Condi's saying. 
uh, you know, about media, uh, the, the uh, propaganda of the CIA and the intelligence agencies and their attempt to manipulate public opinion. Because here, yeah, here you have a political candidate emerging to the fore and, you know, uh, who, who is challenging many, um, you know, elements of, of U.S. Uh, foreign policy. He challenged the dominant narrative about the COVID. I mean, he was very bold about that. His book goes into some of the CIA, you know, the history of the CIA and manufacturing of biowarfare technologies and germ warfare, which was used in Korea, and how that may have been uh, a a precursor to the gain-of-function research that may have resulted in the manufacture of the COVID virus. Uh, So, I mean, it's very radical stuff he's writing about. And he's pointing to deep-rooted corruption and illegality in government, his book and his speeches. And he's talking about the dominance of corp- uh, corporate America and its takeover of the American political system. And he was critical, from what I saw, he was very critical of the war in Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, he, he's, uh, and I think Robert Kennedy is the most courageous of all the Kennedys. And don't forget, his father was was moving. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Sr. was moving in a much more progressive direction. I think he was feeding off before his assassination in 1968. You know, he was feeding off the momentum of the student movements of the 60s, which was a very formidable force. Uh, it was against the Vietnam War. And whether Robert F. Kennedy Sr. was an opportunist or not is irrelevant to the fact that he was adopting, again, a more progressive platform and speaking out against the war in Vietnam. And I think the son has picked up on the best elements of the father and has courageously spoken out, again, against these corrupt uh, factions in the government that are uh, carrying out criminal activity and unethical medical experimentation may have spread the COVID pandemic and, you know, that, that were involved in these imperialistic foreign policies. So, I mean, kudos to him for speaking out and, again, picking on the best elements of his family's legacy. And then, of course, we see a media smear campaign that's been going on for years now against him, and that will make, may make it very difficult for him to gain traction, uh, although I think he's going to have a huge following in this election, and he may, he may have an impact, and he's going to help educate a lot of people and better inform people about what's really going on. So I think it's a, it's a great thing he's doing, and uh, kudos to him. Uh, RFK Jr. mentioned the, the parallels between the moment uh, of he now throwing his hat into the ring and when his uh, father did back in uh, 68. Um, and, and and it's quite striking. I mean, it's uh, I guess if if anything, we're going to know that there things. Uh, the more they change, the more they stay the same. We keep fighting it, the same fights. It seemed like deja vu. And then if the media smear, you know, they're really smearing him. They're going on overdrive. They're trying to invoke some, uh, you know, elements of his family who may not agree with him right. uh, to try and delegitimize him. Uh, and blowing out of proportion some comments he once made or something like that. You know, the usual smear tactics. But if that doesn't work, if he really gained track, because, look, Biden's 80 years old. Uh, yeah. I mean, 70 percent of, of the country does not want Biden to run again. And he's had a totally uninspired presidency in many ways, been a horrible, disastrous president. And that's predictable because he's had a horrible career for 50 years. He was associated with many of the worst policies uh, in U.S. history, the crime yeah. bill. 
that led to mass incarceration, the Iraq War, uh, just two of the most notable. And the guy's a, a dud. I mean, he finished near last in, in his class in law school. And this is the guy we produce. America is supposed to be such a great nation. And they produce this dud who's corrupt, has a corrupt family, and is a, a major war hawk, is a threatening a nuclear war, is threatening both Russia and China. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, almost everybody says we could do better. Then Biden, here's Kennedy, you know, invoking the, the Kennedy name. You know, it, it's still a magical name for all the, you know, if you really look into it, I mean, yes, there's a lot of dark side. And I mean, we shouldn't be under illusion about the Kennedys. And even Robert was not perfect at all. But again, there was, you know, Robert was, again, you know, playing off of the 60s movements. And I think there would have been a lot of positive change if he wasn't assassinated. So, look, he has the name. Let him play off that. If he's going to do good with that name, sometimes that's what you need. And, you know, somebody who had the star power or the, or the family pedigree. And I think what he's saying is right on point. I think he's shown a lot of courage in what he said about the COVID, you know, speaking out against all these corruptions. Uh, and, you know, his book was very good. I read his book and it was very well researched, very eye opening, very thought provoking. And he had some good sections again on the CIA history uh, and how that may have set the precedent for. That this uh, unethical gain of function research. So uh, again, well, and the and the speech was excellent. I mean, he stood up for two hours. Uh, all, it seemed like he was reading without you know without notes. Imagine yeah. in the past couple presidents even standing for twenty minutes with a, you know, other than talking about toilet flushing and so forth. I mean, it it was pretty inspiring from and that yeah. coming from me, a pretty pretty jaded yeah. <laughs> individual, I would say. Very smart guy. And very knowledgeable, very passionate, and I think he's speaking out on the right issues. So, and I think he's going to have an impact. I think many Americans feel that way. Certain, you know, there have deep misgivings uh, about many of these policies. They don't trust the government at all. He's going to draw a lot of conservatives. You know, there are a lot of young people who were watching the Tucker Carlson show because Tucker mm -hmm. Carlson was speaking out against the Ukraine war, uh, spoke out about, against the COVID lockdown, and he was starting to get a younger audience tuning into Fox. And I think Tucker Carlson, you know, now he's out. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, there are some ugly things you know, Carlson was associated with, but on a few topics, I think he, he was on point. And, uh, you know, young people are gravitating to him, and then they, and, and Carlson endorsed Robert Kennedy. So I think there's a younger generation that will uh, you know does not want biden and i think will will support kennedy so I, th I think he could really shake things up in a democratic primary and they're going to use all methods of subterfuge and all the dirty tricks to try and uh, isolate him and undermine him and if they can he would be in danger like his uh, like his father unfortunately i had an article that showed there was clearly a conspiracy uh, the, uh, behind the murder of, of Robert Kennedy, and that was a, another great atrocity and tragedy yeah. for American politics because I think positive change would have occurred under Kennedy, and instead yeah. we've got Nixon and Reagan and Trump and Bush, and it's been a horror show ever since Robert Kennedy's death. Well, and certainly Robert Kennedy Jr. believes that the the story, the the official story on his father's um, assassination, is inadequate to put it mildly. My article on it: uh, the the facts are clear. That the just the number of bullets 
it's impossible that Sirhan could have been the lone assassin. And in fact, the angle which Kennedy was killed, the bullets that killed him, it couldn't have come from Sirhan's gun. Uh, so there, there were other assassins in the room. Uh, Sirhan was clearly set up as, as a patsy. Dealey Plaza. It's Dealey Plaza again, but uh, yeah. but inside. And Robert Kennedy Jr. was actually there with his father when this happened. Jeremy, there's a ton more, and we didn't get to all the articles that you've been writing. You've got a half a dozen of them in the last couple of weeks or so, and, and they're fantastic. And also, uh, covertactionmagazine.com features other writers with uh, – there's too much to go into. It's just terrific stuff. Again, it's the spring fundraiser. Blow the whistle on U.S. imperialism and help Cam – uh, keep going, covertactionmagazine.com. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. I, I, I always learn from your uh, your articles and from our discussions, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on uh, today and talk a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I enjoy the discussion very much as well. Till the next time, then.